morning. Well, um, I want to talk to you today about the subject of sanctification. Sanctification is a big word. You probably have heard it before. Um, Maybe not totally sure what it means. Sanctification, at least the way that I'm going to use it today, um, because there is another meaning being sanctified can have another meaning, but the way I'm going to use it today is the progressive, ongoing growth in godliness. Progressive, ongoing growth in godliness, or the increasing Christ-likeness that's to be exhibited in the life of a Christian, something that increases over time, or the, the positive advance of a life of practical holiness. The subject, this subject of sanctification, I don't think gets as much airtime as it deserves. Think about it, okay? The moment we believe, all of our sins are forgiven, right? Every single one of them nailed to the cross. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's done, right? We're all... All of our sins are forgiven. In, in other words, you can never be more forgiven before God in terms of what our sins deserve. Your debt will never be more canceled by God than the moment you believe. Furthermore, you're, you're never more justified than the moment you believe. Justified means to be declared righteous in God's sight. We sing a song, an old hymn, that says, Justified fully through Calvary's blood. And that happens the moment you believe in Christ. You're declared innocent, not guilty, righteous. However, sanctification takes a lifetime. Right? Sanctification is something that will take all of the rest of your days. The Apostle John in 1 John 3 said, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, the end of this process of sanctification or becoming like him is when Christ appears. So you haven't arrived yet, and neither have I. The end of the process is when Christ appears or his second coming. And this hope, this hope of becoming like him is a purifying hope because Christians want to be like Christ. One way to think of sanctification in terms of, one way to think of this in terms of the doctrines or teachings of salvation is that we are forgiven, adopted, and justified in an instant and then as forgiven people, as justified people, as adopted children of God, were put on the road of sanctification. And we're to give ourselves to this process of growing with great zeal. The goal is not merely to be forgiven. It's not merely to be counted righteous in Christ. It's not merely to be a child of God. And notice merely, all those things are precious. We, We love those truths. Without them, we would be lost. But it's not merely those things. It is to be holy. It is to become like our 
Savior who died for us and rose again. It's to be like Christ in our thoughts and words and actions. I think one of the reasons why this doesn't get the emphasis that forgiveness gets or justification gets or adoption gets is because it sounds like work. And we can wrongly assume that effort in the Christian life is somehow akin to earning our salvation, which is bad. We can't earn our salvation. We shouldn't try to earn our salvation. When we think we are earning our salvation, we're only moving in the wrong direction. So that's bad. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. However, to grow up in Christ is not without effort. Tim prayed earlier, we're to flee, that takes effort. We're to pursue, that takes effort, right? So it's not without effort. I think it was Douglas Wilson, I I don't know for sure, but I think it was him who said that sanctification has two main ingredients, grace and sweat. God's grace, because it's only through God's grace, but then sweat. Human effort, our effort. J.C. Ryle had a pithy saying where he, he said, there, is, there are no spiritual gains without pains. No pain, no gain in the Christian life. I think there's a need for a revival of an emphasis on practical holiness, on progressive freedom from Sin. We sang it earlier. Oh, that day when free from sinning. That day's in the future. We're not there yet. So progressive freedom from sin and positively a growth progressively into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We need a reviving of this emphasis, I think. And so please pray with me about this. J.C. Ryle Again, I mentioned him earlier. He was a, he was a, a bishop in Liverpool. Although his last long stint was in Liverpool, England in the 19th century. He wrote a classic book on holiness. It's called Holiness. And he wrote it in 1879. Listen to what he said. He lamented the lack of emphasis on practical sanctification. And it's almost like he could have, without the... 1800s language, what he talks about is very applicable to today. Listen to what he said. I have a deep conviction for, I have had a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. Politics or controversy or party spirit or worldliness have eaten out the heart of lively piety in too many of us. The subject of personal godliness has sadly fallen into the background. So let's pray, and let's pray that God would do something here today, that there would be a reviving interest and concern and desire to grow and become more like Christ. The goal is not to become your best self, right? The goal is for your old person to die and for you to become like Jesus. 
This is what was God's intended purpose from the beginning for his children. Romans 8.29 says that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that's Christ, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the, the goal is to become like our big brother, Jesus. And that's God's predestined purpose. This is what God intends. And this is the path that leads to eternal life. This is, maybe I, I need to say that again. That was kind of an afterthought. It sounded like an afterthought. This is the path that leads to eternal life. Without real sanctification in our lives, without real growth and practical godliness and holiness, there's no salvation. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace and sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Someone who does not exhibit a changed life probably hasn't been born again. So this is of utmost importance. So our text this morning makes it abundantly clear that the, the, the way to greater usefulness in God's kingdom is holiness. Let me say that again. The way to usefulness is holiness. You got that? The way to usefulness in God's kingdom, in God's hands, is holiness. The way to be of greater use to God in life, bearing fruit for his glory, is holiness or purity or sanctification. I'm using all those words interchangeably. Now, let me make one thing clear. Okay, every person that God uses, praise his name, is imperfect. Okay? God only uses imperfect people. People that have not arrived at perfection. And so we ought to, we can all breathe a sigh of relief. Okay? We don't have to put on errors or anything like that like we have somehow no no God uses imperfect people so I'm not talking about sinless perfection or that somehow we have to arrive at some location some 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 benchmark before God can ever use us it mean are we heading in that direction is that the path we're on do we have a zeal to become like our master I think all of us ought to be able to affirm what John Newton said long ago. John Newton penned Amazing Grace after he got saved from a life of sin and evil. He said, I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be, but thank God I am not what I once was. And I can say with the, with the apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So our text makes it clear that those who want to be useful to God are to be growing in sanctification, are to be on the path of sanctification, seeking to grow in godliness and Christ-likeness. Look at verse 20. 20 says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. 
The picture here is of a household with utensils or gear in the household. Some are used for honorable things. Think of like gold and silver bowls and plates to, to serve food on. And some are used for dishonorable things. Think of like a clay or a wooden bucket to take the garbage out in. Now, I need to be clear up front, okay? There are two schools of thought on what Paul meant here, okay? Two schools of thought, and there are really good Bible teachers and theologians that land in both spots, okay? And I struggled with this until about Wednesday at 4 o'clock, all right? I'm like, okay, I got to land somewhere. I mean, I don't know, I could have skipped over this, but I don't think that's helpful either. So, and, and, and not only are there good teachers and theologians on both sides, but there are good arguments to be made, for both sides. And, um, and perhaps I could be persuaded to switch sides without, whole, uh, well, it takes some effort. But um, anyways, so there are some who think the two vessels, the honorable and the dishonorable, are talking about Christians and non-Christians. The Christians are the honorable vessels and the non-Christians are the dishonorable vessels. And that the way you become an honorable vessel is you get saved. And then there are some who believe that this is talking about two groups of Christians. Honorable and dishonorable vessels. Gold and silver, wood and clay. And one group is further along in their sanctification, in their holiness, in their practical godliness, and therefore they are of more use to God. That's what I believe. I believe this is talking about two groups of Christians. One is considered, one is called honorable, gold and silver. One is dishonorable, wood and clay. And there are three reasons why I've landed on this understanding. First, Paul says that the way to move from being dishonorable to honorable is by cleansing yourself. Now, that doesn't sound like the language of getting saved, at least not in Paul's, not the way that Paul uses that language other places. For instance, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So he uses that language of cleansing ourselves to talk to Christians, to believers about perfecting holiness, about growing in holiness, growing in practical godliness. I think if Paul meant that someone needed to become a Christian, he would have used different language. Repent and believe or something along those lines. Second, Paul is writing to Timothy. And though there's some general language here, Right? If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will become an honorable vessel, useful to the master, ready for every good work. That's more general. The, the, there are many exhortations that are specifically to Timothy, urging him to grow in godliness. So he's talking to Timothy, who's his spiritual son. Right? Timothy's a, a pastor in the city of Ephesus. He's, he's Paul's spiritual son. Paul is his mentor. Paul is his spiritual father. 
The third reason why I've landed on this position is that there's no instruction, and I mentioned this earlier, so it kind of connects with the first one, is there's no instruction to repent and believe, but rather several exhortations to do things that Christians would do in order to please the Lord. So for these reasons, when I combine them, Okay, it's not just one of them, but all three of them. When I combine these reasons, I think it's written to Christians who are honorable vessels and some who are dishonorable vessels and urging us to seek by God's grace to become honorable and useful in God's hands. Look at verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now everyone, regardless of what maturity level you're at, how long you've been saved, whatever, everyone who is truly born again has the Spirit of God in you You read that and you say, I want to be useful to my master. I want to be useful to him. I want to be as useful as I can be. Again, we see that the way of going from being dishonorable to an honorable vessel is through cleansing. And this cleansing makes us more useful to the master. It makes us more fit for our holy and gracious God to make use of us more usable. The master of the house would never dream of serving food out of something that's used to take garbage out of. Never. But rather on a clean plate of gold and silver. And when we're useful to the master, we are ready for every good work. Now, I just need to pause here for a moment because One thing that J.C. Ryle does in his book, Holiness, I think is so helpful, is he differentiates between sanctification and justification. I mentioned this earlier, but I just want to reiterate this because when someone hears me say, God doesn't use someone who's filthy, well, in and of ourselves, we all are. Right? We need the righteousness of Christ to clothe us like a robe to be acceptable to God. The question is, from there, are we seeking to grow in practical holiness in our daily lives, in the way that we think, the way that we speak, and the way that we live and interact with people? Are we growing in that? And that's what I think, that's what's being talked about here. When we become useful to the master, we're ready for every good work. And of course, this is what Christ has saved us for. We're saved by grace through faith, as I mentioned earlier, but we are saved for good works. Or we're saved unto good works. Ephesians 10, verses 8 through 10. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not a result of works lest anyone should boast. Verse 10, for we are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, we're saved for them. 
It must be said we do not cleanse ourselves in our own strength. Sanctification is not done in our own might. We don't pull ourselves up by the proverbial bootstraps and get after it. But it is effort. It's grace-based effort. It's grace and sweat. And I would say it's sweat born from God's grace and his gracious work in our lives. Listen to the way that Paul describes this idea of God's grace and his own effort. Colossians 1.28, For this I toil, struggling, that's, a, that's the language of effort, struggling with all of his energy that he works within me. We struggle, we work, we fight with his strength. 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in, was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. That's the language of work. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He worked hard, and he worked hard by God's grace. And that's how we're to pursue this. So the way to usefulness is holiness. If you want to see and get a taste of the way in which God can use us, just look at the end of our text, verses 25 and 26. This is, the, this is the glorious way that God can use us. And we should all eagerly desire to be useful to the master to this end. Verses 25, 26. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Through our work as honorable vessels, the Lord works nothing less than eternal salvation in people's lives. We get to be instruments of bringing the good news of Christ and God uses that and grants them repentance and rescues them from the snare of the devil. So beloved, we should want to be useful as possible to the master for the sake of God's glory and for the transformation and salvation of others. A Scottish minister from, the, from long ago named Robert Murray McShane said it's not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Christ. And again, J.C. Ryle in his book on holiness said something almost exactly the same. He said, a very close walk with God should be pressed on believers as the secret to happiness and usefulness. So, if you want to be useful to the master, and I have no doubt that you do, there's hope. There's hope. Verse 22 and following shows us how, by God's grace and with the help of His Spirit, we pursue sanctification and thus make ourselves more useful, or I should say as useful as possible to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are three strong words I just want to unpack with the remainder of our time, okay? Three words that show us how we pursue this and grow in godliness and sanctification. The first word is flee. The second word is pursue. And the third word is serve. Flee, pursue, 
and serve. You must flee certain things. You must pursue certain things. And you are called to Christ's service for the sake of others. So first, flee. Verse 22 says, so, or some translations say, therefore. So you look at what was just said. Therefore, you want to be useful to the master. Therefore, flee youthful passions. Flee. That's a strong word, isn't it? It's not just saying kind of timidly back away from certain things or waltz away. It's saying flee. Flee means to shun or to avoid. Or we would use it just to talk about running away from something. How often Christians and and, and we probably would say, yeah, I do that too. We linger around temptation until it grabs us. How often Christians coddle their sins and justify their sins rather than running from them. God told Cain in Genesis 4, this is a really, really helpful image here. He said, Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Sin's like a robber outside the door, crouching, hiding, and he knocks. And if we, let, if we open the door, he sneaks in, and his desire is for us. Sin's desire is for us, but God said, Cain, you must rule over it. We must get in the practice of fleeing, aggressively fleeing from sin. This is the way the New Testament talks about how we deal with sin. It says flee from it, it says refuse it. It says give it no place. It says things like Romans 8, put it to death. So this is not talking about merely disapproving of sin in kind of a passive way, but a full-on resistance to it. If we do not deal with temptation and sin forcefully, it will wreak havoc in our lives. By the grace of God, we can and we must. Now, when Paul says flee youthful passions, I, I think there's a lot of ways we could talk about this. There, you know, youthful passions, maybe some things come to your mind, some sins that are you know, connected with youthfulness and so forth. And I think, I think that's what Paul means. But he, he seems to have something in particular in mind. So we could talk about flee from passions that you struggle with when you were a kid that you still struggle with or when you were a youth, right? Outbursts of anger and so forth. But I think Paul has something in particular in mind here. Verse 23 He fleshes this out for us, okay? And he says this, refuse or have nothing to do with, I think he's connecting that back to flee, refuse it, have nothing to do with it, flee from foolish, ignorant controversies. Have nothing to do with them, Timothy, is what Paul says. Don't go there. Run away as fast as, 
as you can. Now Paul has used this language in First, Second, First and Second Timothy. He'll do the same in Titus. These are often called the pastoral epistles. He, so back in chapter one of First Timothy, he said there are false teach, there are teachers there. They are they are talking about myths, and they are teaching endless genealogies and so forth. In chapter six of First Timothy, verse four. He says, um, there are some who have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander and evil suspicion. In 2 Timothy 2.16, which I addressed, actually read addressed two weeks ago. 2 Timothy 2.16, it says, avoid irreverent babble. So Paul uses this language And it's somewhat ambiguous. What's he talking about, these controversies? What's what's irreverent babble? What are these myths? We don't don't know exactly, but they all seem to be connected somehow. Now, one thing that Paul is not talking about, he's not talking about biblical truths that some people think are controversial. He's not saying avoid biblical truths that some people don't like. Because guess what? Then the world would just get to decide for us what we can believe and what we can't. There are lots of things that are controversial in our world that weren't five years ago, ten years ago. Not only that, there are things that are controversial even in the church, and they're controversial not because the Bible's unclear about it, but because sometimes we just don't like what it says. So Paul is not talking about biblical truths that rub people the wrong way. So what's he talking about? I think all of these warnings, again, 1 Timothy, earlier in 2 Timothy, and we're going to see it later in 2 Timothy again, are all about bitter fruits that come from the same rotten root. And I think it's this. Extra biblical revelation and special knowledge that was all part of an early Christian heresy that is still with us today called Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis for knowledge. And the idea is that there are gurus, they don't call themselves gurus, maybe they do, they probably do, I guess, some. There are gurus who have a direct line of insight with God, right? They get, receive special insight, special revelation, information. Listen, that's not found in Scripture. And that's the issue. That's why Paul uses words like myths and controversies, which, which other translations say speculations or debatable things. He uses the words irreverent babble. Here's the deal. We all, don't we, we love to hear new things. We're like the, uh, the philosophers that Paul debated with in Athens. They're like, tell us something new. We all love that. Something in our fallen nature that is drawn to that, has this impulse for a new message, some novel experience. But Paul is... Paul says this is something we ought to flee from. Paul tells Timothy, 
Don't go after something new. Rather, guard something that's been entrusted to you. Right? To grow in sanctification, you and I, now listen carefully, okay, I'm not talking about politics here, but to grow in sanctification, you and I need to develop a conservative posture when it comes to biblical truth. We are about conserving what's been given to us, not moving beyond it into new things. We aren't given the responsibility to come up with something new, some novel story or some novel message, but to conserve what has been given to us. We're going through Jude in the men's group, and Jude, the verse that many people, when they think of Jude, it's verse 3. Contend for the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Right? The faith. I think it's talking about the body of truth that we have in the scriptures. We're to contend for the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. So we must have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant speculations, controversies. And oh my goodness, they, they are plentiful. They are plentiful. But here, just to bring it down to kind of like rubber meets the road for each one of us, here's where I think we need to be careful, maybe very personally, each one of us. I, 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 my kids in here? Okay, I got, I got one of my kids in here, okay? Um, around Thanksgiving, Christmas time, we, my, my girls and my wife love to watch Hallmark movies, Christmas Hallmark movies, right? And sometimes Silas and I get pulled into them too. Um, and you know, the, the cliche for Hallmark is this, follow your heart. Follow your heart. And Christians can basically buy into that nonsense. Our hearts deceive us. They do. Um, now, is there a way to, is there, is there, with a lot of explanation, a way to follow your heart? Well, sure. You read something in the scriptures, you're convinced of it in your heart, and you go after it. Praise God. Okay, that's good. But the idea of following your heart, well, what is that? That God gives you special information that, that either can't be found here or you don't really care to look here and he just gives it to you so you can, well, that's, that's going down a dangerous path. Have you ever talked with someone and they're convinced that God has shown them something in their heart but it goes directly against scripture and, you, and just in love you go to them and say, hey, you know, I know you feel led to do this, but God's word says this, and they're like, yeah, I know, but in my heart, I know this is right. What is that? That's Gnosticism. That's what it is. Have nothing to do with it. I believe the Holy Spirit can lead us and guide us. I believe he does that. I certainly do, but we should be careful with foolish and ignorant controversies, this idea of, anyways, I don't need to belabor it. So we're to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant speculations. Here's why. Here's what Paul says. You know, verse 23, you know that they breed quarrels. What do they do? They give birth to brawling and fighting. 
and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. These things give birth to fruitless arguments, which leads to the second thing we must flee. We must flee combativeness. I'm sure that some people, because of interactions with me, they would say I'm combative. And I need to flee this. We need to flee a combative spirit that cares more about winning an argument than about winning a person. So we're to flee. The second word Paul uses is pursue. Verse 22, the second part, it says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The word pursue, like flee, is a strong word. In fact, it's interesting. The word that's translated pursue in the Greek is most often translated in our New Testaments as persecute or persecuted or persecuting. It's this idea of hostility. It's most often translated that way. So to flee is to run away, to pursue is to run after with great zeal. See, I often think that we, we think that, that um, sanctification is mostly passive. Maybe you've heard the phrase, let go and let God. That's not how we pursue sanctification. Okay, there's a place to let go and just trust God and wait on him. And, but if we're talking about sanctification, we're to get our hands dirty. We're to pursue um, or we think it's all about saying no to things, right? Flee certain things, but we're also to pursue other things. I think it's instructive for us to notice what's not listed in what we're to pursue. It doesn't say pursue your dreams. It doesn't say pursue comfort. It doesn't say pursue riches. It doesn't say to even, it, it doesn't even say to pursue joy, at least directly. We're not told to pursue money or beauty or personal pleasure. Quickly look at what we are exhorted to run after. First, righteousness. Pursue righteousness. A pr- practical a, a life of practical righteousness. This is not talking about the righteousness of Christ that we receive as a gift through faith in him. We certainly have that and praise God we do. This is talking about a personal integrity, virtue, faithfulness of life in thought, word, and deed. To pursue righteousness means to energetically Run in the direction of doing what is right according to God. Remember what Jesus said in um, Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Don't worry about all these other things, right? The things that we do pursue, and it's not wrong. I mean, don't get me wrong. What I said earlier about we don't, not, this doesn't tell us to pursue career. There, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do well in your career. Don't misunderstand me. But Jesus says, don't worry about those things, but rather seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things 
will be added to you. So, to pursue righteousness means to find out what's pleasing to the Lord, right? And to do it with great zeal. Jesus died to redeem us and make us a people who belong to him and who are zealous for good works. So in every situation, seek God's word and his spirit to know what to do and do it with great zeal. We're told to pursue faith. Pursue righteousness and faith. Pursue a lively and strong and growing faith. I think it's fascinating. I mean, again, faith is a gift that God gives us, but here we're told to pursue faith as Christians. Faith in Christ or faith in God and all of his promises is the root of every other virtue. Every other virtue you want to grow in grows out of a strong and lively faith. That's why Peter said in 2 Peter 1, supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness. He goes through this entire list, but it starts with supplement your faith with these things. It all begins with faith. So pursue faith. Don't just passively ask God for faith. Do the things that feed your faith. Amen? And what feeds our faith? Faith is fed by the truth. Right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Faith is fed by truth. Faith, is, faith in God, faith in Christ, faith in the gospel flourishes as we feed on truth. Faith is fed by prayer. Jude chapter 20 says, praying in the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. So pursue faith. Pursue love. In particular, in particular, love for the brothers, love for Christians. Love is the highest virtue. Without love, we are nothing. In fact, we're less than nothing. The word love here is agape. And I think it's, I think it's important to understand this. It's not talking about brotherly love, the kind of love we have where it's like, man, I just love being around you guys. I, I do. But this is talking about agape love, the love of the will, where we choose to love. It's the kind of love God has for sinners, right? For us. So don't look for a feeling of love, but pursue this kind of agape love, a love that gives without looking for something in return. Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that they would be filled with the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We should pray that as well. In fact, we should pray it daily. Pursue love. Also, Paul says, pursue peace. Live at peace with all men, the scriptures tell us, especially those of the household of faith. I think, I think what's meant here when it says, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, he's talking about other Christians, especially with them. Now, there's a time to throw down, right? There is. And there's even a time to confront a brother but our mode of operation should be to be peacemakers. Jesus even said in Matthew 5 that if someone, if someone has anything against you and you're at the altar, 
right? Just think you're, at, you're before God, you're praying, somebody has something against you, comes to mind, put down your gift at the altar and go and reconcile with them. It matters. This is how we pursue sanctification. Okay, I gotta hurry here. So, flee, pursue, last, serve. I'm taking this from verse 24 where it says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. We must seek to be faithful servants of Christ, bond servants of Christ. We see this throughout in the language of the master of the house. The master, of course, is Christ. We are his servants, each one of us. Verse 24 refers to the Lord's servants. We're called to serve. And what is in view, I think specifically, is we're called to serve in how we carry and communicate the Lord's truth. We're not to be quarrelsome, but we're to be kind to everyone. We're not to be impatient, but we're to be patient, even patiently enduring evil. We're to faithfully handle God's word. Paul says, able to teach. Now, again, remember, this is a pastoral epistle. I think there's, a, there's direct application to pastors, but generally to all of us, we want to be faithful in how we handle God's word. And I just want to just point you back to Reed's message two weeks ago where he, he labored on this. To approach God's word like a workman, right? To approach it like I'm going to work. Not, it's not just work. We feast on God's word. But to approach it like a workman because we want to know what it means. We want to know what it says. And we're to speak God's truth with gentleness. Notice Paul says correcting opponents with gentleness. Now to my shame. I have not always done this. I've answered an, an opponent with a rash, harsh tone. And then afterwards I justified it. So, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. The word of God may offend people. Well, you know what? It will offend people. And not just unbelievers. It will offend people. But we must always seek to not be the reason they're offended. The word may offend. It will offend. But may God help us to not be the reason someone stumbles because we're a jerk. We lack gentleness. We lack patience. We're rude instead of kind. Or we just mangle God's word. As a servant of Christ, let's seek to speak his words with kindness, patience, and gentleness. And God, it says, may grant repentance through that. And it's amazing when he does. He gives salvation. So brothers and sisters, the way to usefulness is holiness. We want to be useful, honorable vessels, don't we? Right? Useful to our Lord, 
to serve up the, his choicest spiritual food for the transformation of lives. Amen? That's what we long for. Let's pursue it. Let's go after it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this instruction for us today. Father, may it be so about us that we would, with great earnestness and zeal, pursue to be an honorable vessel, fit for your use, ready for every good work, and be used by you for your glory. In Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Would you-